I can find that in a self-contained 20-minute thing of whatever game I was playing and, and feel better. And I think that interactivity is magic. Hello, and welcome to Why Button, the podcast that asks why we care about video games. I'm your host, Kyle Starr. On this show, I interview creators, enthusiasts, journalists, and media personalities about their origins with video games, what keeps them so interested in the medium, and what excites them about the future. On today's episode, my guest is writer, comedian, and podcast host Christian Spicer. Christian has written for video games, TV, and comics, has released two stand-up albums, and is the host of several podcasts, including the official Last of Us podcast, and one of my personal favorites, the DLC podcast with his co-host Jeff Kanata. One of the things I find most fascinating about Christian is that he's a former attorney. He graduated top of his law school class and spent a number of years practicing law, but then ended up pivoting out of the profession and into more fulfilling endeavors. All the while, video games remained a core through line throughout his childhood, adulthood, professional, and creative journeys. I hope you find this interview as insightful and fun as I did. It was a pleasure having Christian on the show. Here we go. Christian Spicer, thank you for joining me on Why Button. You are a writer, podcaster, comedian. Some folks may know you from the official Last of Us podcast or your stand-up comedy. For me, truthfully, I am a diehard, dedicated DLC listener, and I have been since probably 2013, 2014. I have this vivid memory of me walking the streets of San Francisco, listening to you and Jeff go on and on about games and just thinking you guys had such a good uh, a good take on everything. And so, yeah, I, I really opened my eyes to what podcasting and video games is. So I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us. That aside, and listeners won't know this, but we are also um, puppy pals, could you say, or, uh, or dog dads. Our puppies come from the same breeder. So uh, our relationship goes far and above just um, acquaintances on Twitter or what have you. Our pups play quite a lot. So thank you, Christian. Yeah, well, it's my pleasure. And I loved how artfully you danced around the word friends. Um, so that's, uh, you know, that that always feels good um, to not use the F word. You, <laughs> you did tell me that I am in your phone under my dog's name. So I'm just going to. That was a joke, that though. Mm -hmm, that was mm -hmm. a joke. You're in there right. under your daughter's name. <laughs> so uh, why button? This podcast is about it's exploring the the question of why do we care about video games? I personally love video games, but I don't play them as often as I would think that I do. If I really take a step back, you know, I play for maybe an hour or two a month. There's not a whole lot. Uh, that's needless to say, I'm a dad and I've got other responsibilities. But even before that, it's, you know, picking up a controller and playing, it's fun, but it's not as interesting to me as observing the medium and seeing where it goes. Um, and so I am very interested in asking people who um, are involved in the medium, who uh, either create or observe or write or podcast about games, uh, why they are so interested in it and why they care. Without me continuing to blab on, could you tell me a little bit about yourself, how you sort of got involved in games, into podcasting about games and your current relationship with games? Sure. There's a, a long rambly version of it, and I'll try to do a little more condensed version. I mean, games have always been a part of my DNA, if you will, for as long as I can remember. Um, we had a ColecoVision at home, and then I remember we got an NES after that as kind of like first consoles or first taste of gaming. And I, I feel like for as long as I can remember, I've always enjoyed the interactivity and the storytelling possibilities and what could captivate about a video game in and above movies, books, TVs, comic books, stuff like that. 
And so I kind of always had, you know, this attachment to them and, and enjoyed playing them and also enjoyed consuming media around them, GamePro, EGM, um, and then listening to early podcasts, of, you know, over with Garnet Lee over at 1UP and, and David Ellis and, and that crew and 1UP Yours and, and everything that that was. And then in college, every year around the Super Bowl, I would host an NFL Blitz tournament where people would come over before the Super Bowl and we'd play NFL Blitz on Dreamcast, which I think was 2002 was the NFL Blitz version we played that was on Dreamcast. We do Soul Calibur tournaments. This is, you know, you can, it's not hard to date how old I am, 40. Um, and Soul Calibur tournaments, Mario Kart tournaments, and we tried to have guys and gals come over and play. We'd have a big bracket on our dorm room. You know, you could sign up and then when these slots were. And so I remember, this is the Rambly version. Sorry, Kyle. I remember I lived in Northern California for about five years and then moved back to Houston, Texas for high school. And when we moved back, you know, I didn't really want to move, even though I had spent most of my life prior to that in Houston. I wasn't excited to leave Northern California. And so my parents wanted to, I think, make it a little easier for us. And they offered to like buy a gift, like a birthday level gift or something like that. And so I remember thinking what I wanted was a Sega Saturn, um, which was more expensive than a birthday level gift, but they, they, my parents would help me out with it. And I remember thinking that I wanted a Sega Saturn because I was about to start high school. So quote unquote, in my head, this would probably be the last video game console I'd ever own, you know, cause I was about to grow up. And then of course I remember waking up early before school to sneak in extra Metal Gear Solid time on the PlayStation one. I remember all nighters playing GoldenEye with friends. I remember pouring over Nintendo power for, um, Zelda tips and tricks, you know, all of this predates fast, readily available internet. And so they were always a part of me. And then in college, those big tournaments we had, then I went to law school <laughs> and I remember <laughs> There was some large, it wasn't a regular class, but I remember there was some large conference or talk or panel that we had in like the biggest auditorium in, in law school. And <laughs> that thing also happened to be the same day or same week that the Gearbox PC Halo port came out. Mm -hmm. And so I was sitting in my huge lecture hall, you know, little seat with my little tray table on my, you know, whatever era Dell laptop there was at the time playing Halo Combat Evolved with a trackpad on my laptop during this big conference or chat or whatever. I, I graduated top of my law school class, so I did something right. But it was always there. Then I was a lawyer and, you know, I still love video games, talked about them with friends, still played them a lot with friends and still consumed a lot of media around them. And then I kind of transitioned out of being a lawyer, which is another long rambly story, which I'll save because this one has already been too long and rambly. No, this and is great. Rambling's good. Love it. <laughs> and uh, started getting into stand-up comedy and writing. And so as those two were kind of Venn diagramming each other, I, through fate and coincidence and whatever, another long rambly story, Kyle, I have too many of these. Um, I, I was on Twitter and ended up being a suggested follow on Twitter. Back before Twitter was Elon's personal PR company that bent to the whim of whatever that egomaniac wanted at the time, it was a fledgling social media thing that you could text to 
uh, SMS text to even if you didn't have a smartphone, which is where the original 120 character limit came from. So you could send it via SMS. And so I, back in that early state Twitter flow, when you signed up, you would choose what you're interested in, like sports, movies, comedy, or whatever. And there was a a brief window there where I was one of the people for comedy. So you'd click like, I'm interested in comedy. And it'd be like, you know, David Spade, Adam Sandler, me, Chris Rock, you know, and that was it. And so because of that, um, you know, I, my presence online started to become greater and I was able to interact with people on a level that I had known kind of. But again, early social media, there was a hope and honesty to it, um, in my opinion. And people were open to connecting with other people and actually chatting with like-minded individuals. If it wasn't for Twitter, I w- we wouldn't we wouldn't have been we wouldn't be talking right now. So yes. I, I think everything to it, right? Yes. I mean, I am largely off of all social media now, but I also realize the hypocrite I am because of it. It has given me so much and, and so many wonderful things. I, I just don't think it serves that purpose for me anymore. Hopefully it does for other people still, or they find ways. And so through that, I ended up becoming friends with David Ellis, who was at um, 1UP at the time, I believe. Now he's been working on Halo uh, for a very long time awesome guy, incredible journalist and um, podcaster about video games and, in my opinion, an incredible developer. And, and the work he's done on, on games over the years also, I think, has been top notch. And he remains a good human being, uh, which I think is also <laughs> incredibly important. Um, and I, if I remember correctly, I think how we connected like the very, very first time, like we were kind of friends on Twitter and chit-chatting back and forth, but I posted, which I don't think you can find anymore because my tweets kind of auto-delete, or at least they did before Elon killed outside APIs. I, I It was like before the 3DS came out, I tweeted something like uh, exclusive leak. You know, here's how the Nintendo 3DS works. And it was a DS, but I forget if I had the top screen or bottom screen. I don't remember if I got the screen accurate, which one is the 3D, but I replaced one of the screens with the magic eye sailboat painting from Mallrats. And so it's just one of those things that if you stare at it, you know, it, it looks blurry, <laughs> but then you stare at it, it becomes this, this 3D image in your head. And so I, I tweeted that out. And again, back when things were innocent and David, you know, laughed at it and we started talking more and became friends. And through that friendship, I, I learned, uh, I became friends with other folks there. Skipping forward ahead, met Garnet Lee and John Davidson, who's at IGN now. Garnet is doing awesome things I think he works at Raw Fury. Um, he worked at Amazon for a while. He was at Shack News for a while. And he's also a, a, a good human being, which is awesome as well. And Garnet and David and John and that group brought so much to uh, podcasting and, and the, the current still conversation about video games and I think an intelligent way to talk about them. But it's also still fun and exciting. And so one day I just, you know, when after one up kind of wrapped or Garnet moved on to Shack News, I was living in San Diego at the time, but I would come up to LA a lot for comedy, whether at the Improv, Laugh Factory or Comedy Store. And so I just reached out to Garnet on Twitter. I think I said, hey, I know you have a rotating fourth chair a lot of times. I'd love to sit in with you all. I'm going to be up, you know, these dates let me know. And I think, again, because of the my Twitter presence and the era in which it happened, he reached out again and said, you know, do you talk about game? We kind of chatted back and forth. And he said, I, that sounds awesome. Let's do it. So I went up there and, and met that crew in person and sat in on an episode of Weekend Confirmed. And that became a regular thing where I think it was on once a month or once or twice a month. That's where I met Jeff Kanata. And then as that wound down, we spun up DLC and started that kind of as a 
I guess the next spiritual successor of all of that stuff. And DLC, we're on our 10th year, start in our 10th year as of we're sitting here recording this. And so I've been rambling for so long, I forget your exact question, but I think that's kind of how I, I, I found where I am. And then through all of that, it, it's the sad story of knowing people and being in the right place at the right time. Like through that, I had the opportunity, or just in general, I think as my Venn diagrams overlapped and I fully retired from law and did comedy more and focused on writing more, I had the opportunity to write on some great video games. Uh, I was featured as an Easter egg in some of my all-time favorite video game franchises. And then through podcasting, I got to do things like the official Last of Us podcast. And, you know, I'm not going to be the person that says I don't have the skill for any of those things. Sure, whatever, fine, ego, blah, blah, blah. But I'm also definitely the person to recognize the privilege and luck I had in terms of the time in which they occurred and the right place, right time of, of meeting people along the way and how privilege allowed me to do that, to be able to walk away from a, a law career and not need that to pay rent because my wife was able to support us and, and take internships, you know, things like that, that a lot of folks aren't, aren't able to do. So I don't want to make light of that or, or deny that that is what largely helped me or even do stand-up. I wouldn't have been able to pay rent as a stand-up for the level of what my career was, even on the tours I did and you know some of the international tours. It wasn't Christians buying a car with this. And uh, everything kind of had just fallen into place where I think if you look back, it makes sense. But looking forward, it is a scary, unpaved road. <laughs> and hopefully you have a four-by-four vehicle that can traverse the rocks and boulders. And that's not to say that everything worked out. Uh, I went through what I would consider deep, long interviews with prestigious video game companies that listeners to this have probably heard of, if not more intimately aware of, for some awesome jobs, working on some potentially awesome games that didn't happen. So I don't want to sit here and be like, and everything was perfect. I got exactly what I wanted. There were some real heartbreaks along the way. Um, I think you were around for one of them when I got <laughs> when I got mm -hmm. an email that was like, we appreciate 40 hours of interviews. Um, not going to happen. So uh, hopefully I answered your question and it was a pleasure chatting with you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. For, thanks for coming to the show. That's it. And that's why you care. Um, no, I mean, you did say a few things in there that, that prompted me and I appreciate you quote unquote rambling. I think that's important. I think you, you can help uncover some of these bits of, of the question I'm trying to get at about why you care. One of the things you mentioned up at the top uh, or towards the top of that was in high school that your Sega, I think you said you asked for a Sega Saturn because you figured this would be the last video game console you were going to own because you're going to become a grown up. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of us have that. I mean, there's a lot to, I think, unpack there a bit because I still have the, you know, if I, after this show, if I go tell my, you know, family or whomever, uh, we have a big family text thread. And if I drop in there, I just got finished recording a video game podcast. That whole thread's going to blow up calling me a nerd, or at least that's how I perceive it in my head, right? Like it's not an adult thing. I, that is very much not true uh, based on the demographic who plays video games is very, very much adult. Um, and everything before, you know, below that, but there's that, I think our generation has that, you know, had that mindset of like, after high school, it's time to grow up, like no more Neverland. It's, you know, and so video games were, you know, this little thing that, that was ours. We, we, it was a medium we grew up with and saw it grow up, um, as well. And, and 
I think we all sort of figured that we were going to have to put that away because we saw it a little bit as a toy because I think that's what our parents and other older generations saw it as as well. Um, is that how you felt at the time? Like, I can't, I'm going to college, I can't play video games anymore. Is that sort of, am I, am I kind of hitting the right notes here? Yeah, and I think it was even, you know, I, I don't know if I saw myself playing them through high school. I don't know what I thought I'd be doing and, you know, how I'd fill that spare time. But again, uh, again, insert my age 40 in here. It's not hard to figure out that I largely grew up with them, right? Grew up with the medium and the idea of when there would be that free time or or when there wouldn't or, or what it is and, and how you experience it. It was very much being figured out in real time. And I think that's still the case now. I remember at my Here's my last or second to last law job, but I was in the break room. Lawyering's weird. We don't need to get into that, but I had time down, right? I was waiting on a partner to go over something and taking lunch, heaven forbid. And so I was sitting in that break room and I was playing something probably on my DS or 3DS. And I remember being told like, don't do that. Mm. You know, that that's not a good look. What if a client came by? Meanwhile, you know, you could sit in there and read any Tom Clancy novel right? Or any Twilight book even, or, or whatever it is, right? Pick your uh, trashy, air quote, indulgent popcorn paperback, and no one would bat an eye. But sitting there and play a video game, heaven forbid, you know, that's that's a bad look. And I think that stigma still exists. I don't know if it's still just that older generation that's around or not, but I do think it's a more awkward conversation, even now talking to some other parents or friends explaining what you do and be like, oh, I, uh, you know, uh, I'm a, I critique or write or analyze video games. Oh, so like, but like, what do you do for a job? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, and so I think it's, and I don't know if that would be there if you're like, oh, I write for USA Today, <laughs> you know, or something like that, or even podcasting, right? It's still like, oh yeah, I, I, I cereal, you know, and it's like, that was decade old and there's so many good shows. So yeah, yeah I thought there was just a, a next stage of, of this is a kid's thing. And I didn't, I didn't have the foresight then to see it growing up with me. I just thought it would be remain this thing that kids played because that's how I played them. And for whatever reason, I didn't think that they'd continue to grow up with me and I would continue to play them. But you did and you kept playing them in that break room, you know, as an attorney, like how did you did you have that stigma in the back of your mind? Like maybe, <laughs> am I going to be the weirdo bringing a 3DS or, or a DS or, or whatever that, you know, the console was into the break room or were you just able to, have you always been able to kind of put that stigma behind you and say, this is just something I enjoy and I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Well, I think like a lot of them, they're learned. I, I don't, did, I didn't give it much thought, you know, going into it. I didn't think I was going to be a rule breaker. Like, oh, I'm going to sh stick it to those old crusty partners. I'm going to play video games in the break room. I thought I have 20 minutes. How would I like to spend that time, um, you know, playing Minish Cap or whatever it was, right? I guess it's a GBA game. And then I, I, I learned that that was not okay, that that was not perceived as acceptable attorney behavior, quote unquote, at that firm. And I think that's kind of how a lot of those things happen is that you're told like, you shouldn't be doing that. That's a, that's a thing for not serious people. And I think mm -hmm. that's a bummer because I think everything that is viewed that way, not everything, a lot of things that are viewed that way are made by people that make a living making them, <laughs> you know, and, and I think are worthwhile pursuits, even if it is just to unwind for a little bit the way anything else might be. So why were you picking up a video game rather than a Tom Clancy novel or a magazine or a newspaper? What was the draw? Why did you want to spend, you get 20 minutes, why, why am I grabbing a Game Boy or a, or a DS? I, I think that is it. There's a, a, many, 
a lot of ways that that question can be answered for me personally, but I think a big part of it is I think video games can represent the best of storytelling. And I mean that even in a game like Tetris, objectively the best game of all time, where the drama of Tetris is a competition against yourself or kind of like playing tennis or going and shooting free throws, you know, and seeing you're not leaving the court until you make 20 free throws in a row or whatever. You're not leaving the tennis court until you get 10 serves right where you want them. And I think video games allow for that level of it's the interactivity, right? The interactivity, I think, is what makes video games extra, however you want to phrase it. And I think whether or not that is the involvement in the narrative, where I love HBO's The Last of Us. I think it is some of the best television I've ever seen, much less an adaptation of anything. There are Road to Perdition is an exquisite adaptation of a comic book, so much so that I think most folks don't know it's a comic book. The MCU is incredible. Batman 89, Dark, there's, there's great adaptations. And I think The Last of Us is up there, you know, top tier of them. But I'm also so glad I played that story as a video game because I think for me it hit in a way that the show doesn't in the sense that I'm furthering myself, my character through it. You have that connection. You have that interactivity. The examples I always give, and so I apologize if this is trite at this point, but they're sincere, are the microwave tunnel and Metal Gear Solid 4, where there's a part in the game where your character needs to get to the end of a room, and in that room, radiation is blasting down on them, and your character is being hurt. And the only way you can advance your character is by repeatedly pushing, I think it's X, a button. And you have to push it so fast and so frequent that your thumb is uncomfortable. I mean, it's not anywhere near the level of hurt that someone that being exposed to massive amounts of radiation would feel. But there is this moment of one-to-one connecting you to that character in that moment. And I think that's a great example of video games interactivity. And the other example I always give are horror games like Resident Evil, where when you're watching a scary movie or a scary TV show, you can sit down and be like, Tina, don't open the door. Don't open. Oh, she opened the door. You know, Gary, run away. Oh, why would you do that, you idiot? And then they do it. But in, in video games, I'm Tina. I have to open the door. The, the story, the game will literally stop if I don't push forward. And I think that can make things so much scarier. So that's one aspect. And the other aspect is kind of the, the zen or tranquility that they can provide, again, because of their interactivity. I love listening to music. Uh, I often unwind listening to music and, I, and it helps me almost hit this meditative zen state. But there are games like Tetris or specifically Tetris Effect or Res or the new game Humanity from the same studio that I think allows you to unwind and unlock in a way that other types of entertainment don't. That's not to say I don't enjoy reading or I don't enjoy watching movies or TV shows, but that is a very long-winded answer of why that would be the first thing I would look to pick up if I have 20 minutes. It's like, well, this has been stressful. I've been doing all this stuff, doing this research, writing this brief, talking to this judge or talking to opposing counsel or whatever. I just need a moment for myself. I can find that in a self-contained 20-minute thing of whatever game I was playing and and feel better. And I think that interactivity is magic. So that's why I would keep going back to it over and over and over again, even though every time someone says bad dog, <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep those paws, get those muddy paws outside the house. I, I, but I think it's a great point, though. I think there are a lot of reasons that people play games. I, you know, the reason why the, I guess the tagline of the show is not why do you why do you play games? But why do you care about games is the answer to playing games is 
you know, could be competition, could just be, it's, it's fun. And I, the community aspect, or, or like you said, maybe their story or, or that, that you're following, or you appreciate design and, and you're looking at games through that lens. But I think the caring about it is sort of, you're touching on it a little bit that it's, there's this effect that it's having on you as you're interacting with the medium. And it's a medium that you, you know, one of, if not very, there are probably very few mediums that you can actually have that one-to-one relationship with. And it's doing something to you where you have that visceral sort of experience of, you know, there's a pain, I'm experiencing a pain, this character's experiencing pain. And, and um, that's interesting. What else can this medium do beyond that? That keeps you guessing, keeps you wondering, right? And that's only through that interaction. I'm not going to say that's the only reason people care or, or whatnot, but that is definitely one of them. So you mentioned those moments, and I'm going to pivot. It's not, I guess, a, a little bit of a pivot, but in thinking about back at your, I guess, life in general and that relationship with games, um, you touched on your early days with games from from the very beginning through, you know, now all the way to hosting a, the Last of Us podcast, which I got to imagine is one of the games that has affected you profoundly on a, a number of levels. But what are, say, three to five games that you have felt have had this you know, effect on you that has kept you wondering about what's what's next in games or has, has sparked a, a level of awe in you? Can you think of those profound moments and the games that triggered those for you? Yeah, I feel like that's an impossible question, but I will do my best. It's it, for me, it's what's your what is your favorite song of all time? And it's like, well, today, uh, right. right now at 337, these are them. And it might be very different just half an hour from now, but there are many, but I will do my best to limit it. Tetris on the original Game Boy was certainly one of those to have this thing that was infinitely replayable and so simple and able to go with me anywhere was a profound experience where even reading a book, you know, you finish the book and then it's okay, well, what next? And there was, I think probably portable Pong or game and watch style things before, certainly. And, And board game, you could have travel checkers, you know, and sit there and play or solitaire or something like that. But the simplicity of the game combined with its infinite replayability was mesmerizing. And it it is a game that is best as a video game. I know there's like board game versions of it or this, that, or the other, but what video games provide make it, in my opinion, the best version of that thing. And then link cabling up against somebody else and, and that opening the world of like, oh my goodness, there's a whole other level to this was was transcendent for me back then. So that was a huge one. That was definitely a huge one. I'll probably do four. Let's see if I can spread genres out a little bit. Super Mario Brothers 3 was another big one for me because the jump that it took from one and then here in the US, two, what we got as as two, a very different style game. And then going back to three, which felt like this creativity explosion from what one was into what three allowed was kind of a wake up call for me of, of what these games could continue to grow into. And it's a shame I didn't think then that I would still be playing them. Because it was just, it, you know, it absolutely, it absolutely blew me away in terms of, of of how that expanded on an idea and showed the creativity of the designers and allowed for creativity as a player. That was one of the first games where, you know, again, 
as an old, like, oh, my cousin's friend's brother found a secret where you can get a warp whistle. And did you read this in Nintendo Power? And you can do this. And it was the first time that I started poking around the edges of a game and trying to find those those shortcuts or those hacks or those glitches and and how I could have agency over something that was that was otherwise pre-built. Absolutely, absolutely blew me away. The Last of Us, of course, I, I do need to mention, I think as a narrative storytelling game, I played it right after I had had my daughter. My daughter, her nickname when she was young, she has told us that she got older, she does not like it, but was Ellie. So I'm playing it with this main character named Ellie as my daughter is an infant on my lap. Um, who I called Ellie, and having that experience of of that, and having the agency and the interactivity of that that character, and the production value that it brought to games, you know, was was next level in my opinion, and something that a lot of studios are still chasing to to be on par with what Naughty Dog did mm-hmm. a decade ago, and so that was a that was a huge one for me, and then. This might seem uh, against type, I guess, if folks listen to a lot of DLC, but truly, I don't think we're there yet. But another moment in gaming that kind of blew me away was the very first time I played, uh, maybe the second time, but played VR. I think it was an Eve Valkyrie demo at E3. And just that experience of looking around inside this X-Wing-esque cockpit and having this experience of feeling like I'm there blasting through space. It's like this idea of what a game is, it, it, you know, and of course there's negative sides of that, of like gamifying everything, but this idea of interactivity, I mean, it, it, it blew me away. It blew me away what that nascent technology could deliver and my hope for what it could bring to the future was, you know, it's kind of at an all time high. I came out of that euphoric <laughs> and it was on an Oculus dev kit and probably not hitting peak frames and all those other problems with, uh, with VR, but truly incredible, like next leap in what this technology could be. Mm-hmm. So with all that said, and there's some leaps in there, I mean, you go from Mario three to last of us, there were a few video games released between that that time. Well, uh, sure, I was trying to aware. be brief. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could talk about, you know, the hours spent playing Ikaruga on GameCube where I would, on when I, I ran track in college and we would pack GameCubes and at the time VCRs because hotel HDMI wasn't a standard then. And so hotel TVs, they wouldn't have AV inputs. It was just coaxial cable. And mm-hmm. oftentimes that coaxial cable had a plastic sleeve over it so you couldn't take it off so my friends and i we actually made off of blank keys a grab tool that could go in it was like a needle nose plier of sorts that would go in through this black plastic tube over the coaxial cable so we could unscrew the coaxial cable plug it into the vcr we'd have packed a separate cable to go from the vcr to the tv and then we'd plug our our gamecube or xbox into the av ends on the vcr so that we could play games on track trips. We had Ethernet cables going out hallways of hotels to do um, land parties of Halo. There's tons of others. I was just trying to think of like a baby step, a mind opening, a narrative connection, and then another mind opening. But I don't know how long you have, Kyle. But yeah, there's an infinite number of moments in there. No, I bet that's that's the point. Like, right, there's you, the lengths that we would go for some of these things. I, for when you were talking about uh, Mario three, one of the things that came to mind for me that I reflect on very fondly and very fre- frequently is schoolyard conversations. Right, you know, I, I didn't I didn't grow up 
having subscriptions to video game magazines as much as I'd want them. So my only real opportunity to to look at any, you know, media surrounding video games was if I went to, you know, the grocery store, the drugstore with my parents or whatever, and they, you know, gave me a free 10 minutes to just go to the magazine aisle and tear through as many games, game magazines as I could. My first trip would always be to grab a game pro or whatever it was and flip to the back to the cheat code section because I wanted to see what kind of things I what games I you know that I own that were there or that I could go rent and what the cool cheat code did. And a lot of times those cheat codes prompted the game that I would want to go rent or buy. I would see a cool cheat code and like, oh man, that's awesome. NBA Jam, you can play as the mascots. Like, I, I got to play NBA Jam. I got to mess. I got to mess around with these guys. This is great. And uh, anyway, I I didn't have a lot of this pre-internet. Obviously, there's not a lot of you know TV shows other than what was that Nickelodeon show? The uh, I'm forgetting. It was a game show where they could go inside a video game. I should know this. Anyway, I'll 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 pop it in here somewhere somehow. But uh, didn't have access to a lot of this stuff. So the way that that video game conversations would transpire, typically for me, at least, were on the schoolyard, you know, uh, in elementary school or middle school or what have you, where you would start, you know, just conversing about rumors or, again, cheat codes or Easter eggs, things you unlocked in games. How do you beat this level? All of that sort of stuff. And, and you know, those I think those conversations were formative for the intrigue and the the wonder of games. You know, when you start playing Mario three and all of a sudden you, you know, you duck down on the white block for X amount of seconds and you fall behind the entire level, realizing it's sort of a stage player or playing on that stage play sort of theme. Right. Which now I'm thinking I'm, I'm sort of making connections to like paper Mario and seeing the origins of paper Mario and that too. But anyways, dropping back behind that, you know, what is effectively a set was just mind blowing. You can do that in a game. You can break the game quote unquote, but it's all intended. And then sharing that knowledge with others. It was just, it added this layer of not only community, but again, wonder around what is possible in these things. Um, so I thank you for sharing Mario 3 because I'm having now all these like light bulbs going off in my head about my experience with that particular game too. You've, you've touched on this a few, a few times now, but you play a ton of games for DLC. This is a weekly show that you're doing with Jeff and a guest. I don't know how you do it, how you you know find the time to dedicate to, you know, playing games or playing as far as you can in them, even if that were your full-time gig, it's still a lot it, and it asks a lot of you. But with all that said, with all the games that you've been playing and play continuously and constantly, do you ever, there's two questions here. A, do you ever burn out of it? And then B, the flip side of that, what keeps you excited after playing all of this stuff? Why do you still have this like appetite to continue? I don't know if burnout's the right word. There are certainly games that I feel like I had an obligation to play for review, and I've gotten better about this now, where I would keep slogging through it, and I would wish that I was doing something else. There are other better games that I wish I was playing, but I felt obligated, like, well, I, I'm playing this game for review, so I got to finish it, and that's no longer my approach. If I get to a point where I do not like a game, that will be my review. I'll be honest and upfront and be like, I spent four hours with this game and I did not like it. Here's why. And I'll open the door to that. It maybe gets better later. There are certainly works that are across fiction or, or entertainment that are difficult and challenging and uncomfortable at the beginning and then pay that off later. Uh, but usually when I don't like a video game, it's not because the, I find the story or subject matter difficult. I don't enjoy the act of 
playing it. And so I think that that is just as valid a review as any other. Um, I played, you know, made up game 14 and I disliked it. Here are the reasons why. I stopped playing it after five hours. Here are the reasons why. To me, I think that is just as valid of a review as someone who said, I played made up game 14. I rolled credits. It took me 35 hours. I didn't like it. Here are the reasons I don't need to do that. I, I I don't need to finish it to have an opinion on it. I think that as long as you're open and honest and upfront about your experience with the thing, your opinion is valid. And I think the other side of that is you need to then understand someone else's opinion who has experienced the whole thing, even though everything else between the two of you is the same, that their opinion might be very different than yours. And just be open to that and don't shut it down. No, made up game 14 is bad. I can't believe you liked it. Let them like it. That's fine. And so I, I think I've avoided burnout that way where I just don't spend time with things I don't like. And I also tr- have tried to, and one thing I'm proud about DLC doing is generally celebrate games. And even the Last of Us podcast, we talked about some controversies surrounding the Last of Us and some difficulties in making it, but it also was very largely a celebration of that game. And DLC is largely a celebration of games. It's not to say that we like every game we play. I'm sure people can go and find several that I didn't like. I remember Sea of Thieves when it first came out. I did not like Sea of Thieves. I've since you know, come around on that game and I talked about moments of expansions that I really enjoyed, but I'm not going to just drag a game just to drag a game. You know, I'll talk about why I didn't like it, why it didn't click for me, but I'm not going to try to shame someone else for enjoying it. Um, so that really helps me in terms of burnout. And then I think what keeps me going is this medium I, I, I truly believe is still in, in, in its infancy. You know, maybe it's in its awkward middle school years. But it's just like, oh, do you burn out watching TV? No. And I, I do think the interactivity of games require it's a little more of a demanding medium uh, of entertainment than, than watching TV. But there's always something new and fresh. And I think I, I've heard some peers talk about how they've experienced some burnout because every game that has been made will be made and it just feels redundant. And here's another one of these. And this is another one of that and blah, blah, blah. And while there certainly are games that are that the amount of creativity being put into the gaming space in my opinion every day it blows my mind what people are doing yes there's another games as service game that looks crappy that's gonna you know hurt an ip that i love yes there's another wannabe tomb raider game yes there's another wannabe moba all these things but there are also games that tell a story that can't couldn't be told in another medium because of the interactivity required. There are games like, this is several years old now, but Florence, which I played on iOS. Yeah, great game. Which is kind of an interactive story that I think, again, because of the interactivity. Or last year, as we're recording, this thing is 2022, maybe it's 2021, uh, Before Your Eyes is a game that only exists as this interactive thing where you're blinking is what brings the game forward and tells this story and has you connect with it. And so I think that level of creativity and excitement to see what's next combined with they keep making things that I like, it makes it easy to stay excited. It's kind of like, why do you, for some like, oh, why do you keep watching the NFL? It's the same, or MLB, it's the same thing every time. You're not wrong. A baseball game is a baseball game, but did you see, you know, so-and-so pitcher make it through seven innings without, did you see so-and-so hit this double in a moment? There's a wonderful story about a player whose name I'm blanking on right now, but they're currently a play for the Angels, but at the time played for the 
the Rays during the 2020 World Series. And he hit the game-winning walk-off run for the Rays. I think it was game four of the 2020 World Series. And he came up, he wasn't, you know, no manager would ever have put him in in that situation, but he came in as a pinch runner in the eighth, and then they batted around in the ninth, and it was two outs. And this person is like a 188 hitter. This person never should have been in that situation. Never should have been in that situation. But they were, and they got the game-winning hit and, and all that stuff. And so it's the continued creativity, but then also the joy of the moments of experiencing the thing that I love over and over and over again helps keep me excited about it. That's not to say I don't look at some of these digital press conferences and go, I don't need to watch this because <laughs> I know what this is doing and what this is delivering. But there's so much joy and so much creativity in the field that it is not hard for me to stay excited about games. Is there a particular game or games you're excited about right now? I think humanity is is incredible and doing something really new and fresh. It's the same studio that did Res and Tetris Effect. And as of we're recording this, there's, there was a timed demo that came out and that full game is coming out pretty soon, which I think is awesome. I'm su- uh, call me a shill. I'm super excited for Naughty Dog's multiplayer game. They've mentioned that it's going to be have storytelling elements to it, and it's as far as I know their first attempt at this style of standalone product. Factions I thought was awesome in the first The Last of Us. It's multiplayer mode. I really enjoyed multiplayer in the Uncharted franchise, but a big standalone multiplayer game from them is super exciting for me. And I'm very excited to see what uh, Tears of the Kingdom is, the next Zelda game. You know, Zelda Breath of the Wild. That's another great example of, well, it's just another Zelda game. But it's like, this is one of the most successful franchises of all time. And Nintendo did a Super Mario Brothers 3 with it, right? They tore it down, rebuilt it into this new, totally unrecognizable, yet same, somehow same thing and created a game where people could create things that they never dreamed of. And now it looks like they're iterating on that and kind of doubling down on that creativity and that physics and that construction and that making things. And I'm almost more excited to see what people do with that game than play it. Um, But that creativity that developers and then players are finding within those games, I find super exciting. That's awesome. And looking forward a bit, where do you, I mean, this is another impossible question and maybe you've already answered it with your experience with VR and whatnot from Tetris to Mario to last of us to VR. Like where, where do you see gaming going? Do we continue to even call it gaming at some point? I have like a personal druther about the fact that we even call it video games to begin with. It's just a legacy that's inherited over this time. But when you really sit back and think about it, is it a video? Not really. And is it some of them? Yes, there are a lot of games and there's game, you know, very gamey games, but there's a lot of just overall experiences, digital experiences, right? I'm not going to call it that, of course. I think it'll always be called video games. Anybody who sees the sort we of call like... call DEs. Everybody knows the shorthand is DE. Yeah, the DEs. Uh, but, you know, Will, is that what we're going to continue to refer to it as? Is that what they are going to be beco- to become? Where do you see this medium in five or 10 years? Again, totally impossible question because we don't know what's going to come out tomorrow, truthfully. There's the pessimistic view. And I think the pessimistic view which I hope is not true, and I I don't think it is, but the pessimistic view, in my opinion, is it becomes a abusive, we follow this trend of it becoming an abusive hellscape of indentured servitude. Roblox meets Web3 meets, we need child labor laws because people are exploiting the labor of creatives building things within a, a tool set that, a company air quotes provides. 
and everything is is quote unquote gamified to release just the right dopamine hit combined with social pressures of what we see now on social media to stay involved in an ecosystem so that you don't let your guild or clan members down or your friends. You need to check in and do this, that, and the other. And it becomes something that is negative for our mental health. I think much in the way that social media is for many people now today, but addicted to it because we don't know how to pull ourselves away from it. I think that's the dystopic, sad view of it. I think the hopeful view is that it continues to revolutionize how we communicate with each other, how we experience joy in our downtime, and how we experience story. And I I don't think that means that the traditional flat screen video game needs to go away or change. I think, you know, I I think we'll have Pac-Man or whatever that version of like very gamey games, I think will continue to be there. And I think we'll have incredible interactive stories, things like um, Her Story and um, Immortality and Sam Barlow's games where they're doing things that, again, only exist in this interactive medium in such a fun and exciting way. And I think we'll continue to have that. And I think we'll, I, I think as we look forward, things will continue to expand and the barriers that I hope are eliminated are access. Gaming is, again, talking about and accepting and acknowledging my privilege that my parents were able to help me buy a Sega Saturn back in the day, which I think was $400 or $500 when it launched and, you know, 19 old person money and back in the 1900s, as my kids would say. Um, that came out in the 1900s. You're not wrong, but man, it hurts when you say it like that. <laughs> but I think I think access and availability and having it anywhere at any time in you know much in the way that streaming TV shows are now. Xbox has that with xCloud, GeForce Now, PlayStation has a version of that, but I think we'll continue to see that to have the best processing power be available to everyone at all times where the only thing you'll need is a screen and a way to input whether that's traditional controller, hand tracking, eye tracking, touch screen, whatever it is. And I think certain games might call for different things of those, but I think it truly is that accessibility, allowing more people to play how they want, when they want, wherever they want. And I see that as a beautiful, bright future of making gaming seamless, where I can sit and play 20 minutes in a break room on a device that I have, and then I can come home and pick that up wherever I am or some other way. And I can have that experience the same way here today as someone else could across the world on their device. And they're able to pick it up and play and that that barrier of entry goes down and we get more people into the the medium we love. You, You reminded me of something as you said that and something I wasn't thinking of that sort of, you know, emblematic of this podcast too, of uh, addiction. I don't want to go down the dark road, but, you know, games themselves, the the, the nature of games and play, you could look at a casino the same way, right? There is an addiction to these things. There's, there's an addictiveness to uh, gamifying anything to make it sticky, right? 
And, uh, you know, you either want to beat the level, get the highest score, see what's around the corner, what's happening in the story. You know, folks can get easily attached to these things. There are truly problems out there and, and very problematic practices with addiction and how to keep people playing constantly. Um, but I do think that by nature, this, you know, video games are, I guess, to use the term addictive because they are so wondrous because you don't know what's going to happen. But there is a very predatory piece to that, right? There's people who can take advantage of the fact that they are so unique and anything can happen. You can make a computer do anything you want and you can make these games do anything you want. And uh, I, I think that's, you know, again, just like you're saying, there's it's a, you know, one side of the coin, it's extremely dangerous. On the other side, as long as that's not being um, exploited, then there's, there's a real beauty to the idea that anything can happen, which makes these things so intriguing and unique, you know, makes people want to keep coming back over and over and over. Um, the fact that there are fears about video game addiction and always have been really since the medium began um, in the 70s and, and 80s and that that's still around shows that you know it's not I mean it's definitely not a niche you know medium anymore or, or niche art form anymore it was at one time but the fact that so many people play these things um, across the world um, because they are you know joyous but potentially addictive is a very interesting sort of uh, sort of uh, I guess attribute to, you know, to video games in general. And again, is also a reason why I may feel very uh, self-conscious about saying that I am doing a video game podcast or I play video games or I'm reading about video games or I'm watching a documentary about video games. People have sort of a negative connotation because of that side of things, right? It's not only that this was for kids, but there's also this, this addictive nature to it. But I think that addictive nature in a lot of cases, kind of rambling and going in circles here, but a lot of that addictive nature is because they are so interesting and there's so much possibility in the space and it hasn't slowed down since the beginning. Yeah, I, I think maybe I would use compelling for one side of that instead of addictive, uh, which is just, you know, knitting over over words. I think video games can be very compelling, but I think they can be addictive. And I think much in the same way that social media is and can be. I think that we are learning how to manipulate the brain and the dopamine responders in it before we fully understand the, ramif the ramifications of mm. those actions. And the idea of there are people smarter than I that have written about the adding of a like button or a fave button to Facebook or Twitter and allowing people to comment or share and the ad addition of an algorithm that shows you things that you are more likely to engage with and the things you're more likely to engage with are things that make you angry and how that plays into our, our, our compulsion to keep checking it and to keep reading it and to keep seeing it. And in video games, the idea of that constant dopamine hit of, good job, you've been podcasting with Kyle for 20 minutes. Here's the thing. Good job. You did this. You did this. Oh, you got to just do this to do this. Here's this bar filling up. And I think part of that is we all crave uh, approval. And video games give that to us in a way that we often don't see it in regular life. I'll say something that is not an explicit word, but might be a concept you might want to edit out. I think in many ways, human beings are still very stupid animals where all we want is to be accepted and to orgasm. That is all we as people are looking to do. Feel loved and to feel loved. And, and games give us oftentimes that that first type of love and approval and pats on the back. And we, society is often a lonely place and we're not given positive reinforcement. And so I think they have that. And I think there are nefarious actors 
in the gaming space who are trying to abuse that dopamine release to extract as much money from people as possible. There are bad actors. I'm not trying to be a both sides person here, but uh, there's an excellent podcast and I think it's a Peacock Paramount Plus TV show about Dr. Death. You know, there are bad doctors. There are, surprise, bad police officers. There are lots of bad uh, Catholic priests. There are bad Boy Scout leaders. There are bad Girl Scout leaders. There are terrible Olympic gymnastic coaches and doctors. There are So there are definitely bad actors in the gaming space that I think are doing things with malintent and or you know willing to damage people in order to as a succubus extract maximum profit from them or engagement or whatever it is but i don't think video games are are bad i think people are bad and do bad things and i think it is a new medium for people to exploit abuse and hurt people there are old texts of uh, you know, how the printing press was bad for society. Reading was kept for the intelligentsia. And if anyone could read, you lose control over them. You're not able to be the only person to tell them what is or what was. When movies came out, you know, you're going to rot your brain watching TV all the time. So as these things happen and evolve, turn off that rock and roll. It's, you know, that's not music. That's going to corrupt you. And so I think video games, as I talked about earlier, I think are still in their adolescence in that regard, but they're also growing up in this world of neuroscience, data and understanding and, and ways to manipulate human behavior. And so I think we see that across mediums, but it is very much occurring in video games as well. I just don't think it's limited to them. I'm going to focus more on the the lights. I, you put that extremely eloquently and, and thank you for that. I think that was a great explanation of the dangers of addiction and exploitation and, you know, just bad, bad people in general. And it's, it's, you know, good to remember that um, with anything that not everybody has your, your best uh, interests um, at, you know, at heart on the lighter. I think the lighter side of that is sort of the art aspect of it, the creation of it. And this might be toward, you know, us getting towards the end of this conversation. And I think it's a good place to go uh, with your particular experience, looking at it as an art form, you yourself are a creator. You have written for and, you know, uh, and continue to write for games as well as other mediums. I'm curious what the, and this is more about the, the the nuts and bolts, the logistics and how you approach writing for games. But, you know, what has your experience with games writing been? What does that process look like? Do you have to dance? Have you ever been put in a situation where you've had to dance around these sorts of problems per se or, or you know, uh, balance between the art and commerce of it all? Right. Um, and, and, you know, overall, I guess just the question is what, you know, how what is it like being a, a games writer? <laughs> I think the beauty of that is that it, it can be so vastly different depending on the game or genre that you're writing for. And I think there is a difference in movies and television as well. Are you doing a serialized show? Are you doing a feature? Are you doing a comedy? Are you doing a horror? Of course, there's different genres within those things. And I think we've seen that industry change with the rise of streaming as well, where you're not trying to keep people around through next commercial break. You're trying to keep them around to the next episode so that they'll binge. It's not so much of I need you to stick around for three minutes so I can tell you about this cereal, this coffee, and this toy. I need you to keep paying me $15 a month because you need to see what happens next. So 
it, it kind of got referred to as the Netflix ending where a show would end and you're like, no, I just got good. I need to know what's next. And so while structurally that has changed how a lot of shows are written, the idea of writing for television or TV is still largely you write on final draft and you write the thing, they film the thing, they edit the thing. Sometimes you need to do new lines, you know, because of edits or whatever, you need some ADR lines added later, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to need you to come back for this podcast, by the way. We're going to have to redo at least 80% of this. Sounds good. I'll have my friend Nick come in and do all my ADR. Um, With games, it's such a broad medium. I think as you talked about, like we even call them all video games. Writing something, I imagine, I have not written on any of these games. But I think, you know, when, when Neil Druckmann sat down to write The Last of Us, that is a very story heavy game. And I know that there were, if you again plug, listen to the podcast, they talk about kind of what that was like and going through and changing things. But that to me is more akin to writing a movie. But that's not the only type of game that there is. There are procedural games that have writing come up in them. And how is that story presented? And how you how do you write that style of game? How do you write a, a Skyrim versus a Last of Us? How do you write Mario? Even just the little humorous text bubbles that come up while you're playing Super Mario 3, the princess is in another castle. Someone wrote that, you know, in, in Super Mario Brothers, the first Super Mario Brothers, um, versus Celeste, which is a beautiful, also platforming game that tells a very different story. And some of that story is told not just through the writing, but also through the gameplay, the interactivity, the moments of it. So that what's that collaboration like of, okay, we're telling the story about coming out and depression and seeing yourself for the first time. And so you can just have a story that just says, your character has come out. Now go do this platforming level, (laughs) you know, and what that (laughs) game would be like, or the gameplay itself can reflect what that is. There's moments in Celeste where you, your character literally breathes in the way you interact with them. So I think writing Mm -hmm. that is a different experience where I imagine Maddie and the team at Extremely Okay Games I imagine was more of give and take of here's this level, here's this concept, here's this thing we want. And also in, in retrospect and what she's written about it, a very personal game for, for Maddie and, and that time in, in, in her life. And then there's RPGs where the main story is going to be the player experience, right? You're this voiceless, nameless create a character and you go experience this world, but it needs to be a rich tapestry of a thieves guild. And you've got to write that whole story that someone can just sit and listen to for an hour. You know, you, you play through the Witcher three or something like that. And what does that look like? And so writing for games, there are so many different ways to go about it that I don't think it's, it's standardized yet in a way. It depends on what type of game you want to be writing for and what the developers making that game are willing to do. A lot of games, in my opinion, still today put writing last. And I think that's unfortunate because I think they can be better if they kind of work together. I worked on a game that will remain unnamed, but as I was writing for it, the company needed to do monetization stuff. And because of that, something that I had planned and you know went up all the approvals, down the approvals, all that standard stuff, of writing feedback notes, blah, 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 totally had to be scrapped because other a business team came in and took priority. And the story literally had, you know, Empire Strikes Back was missing. It just went A New Hope, Return of the Jedi, as an analogy. And they were fine with that. Like, we'd rather do that than 
not have this money thing happen. That happens in TV also, I think. But I think that the short answer is that there's so many different ways of writing games. And I think if I could give myself advice forever ago, interested in this field, I would study design in addition to writing traditional, you know, English lit, creative writing, stuff like that, but also narrative design. I'd want to know some actual coding, building worlds and design, spending time on narrative design, which can encompass so many other aspects of the game. Again, even like the gameplay moment. Am I, do I walk into a room briskly or is the character going to slow down? How do we set the tone? How do we tell the story through gameplay? And then also traditional writing, I think could, as games exist right now, give you the superpowers to hopefully (laughs) best succeed. Awesome. Um, I don't want to take up any more of your time, uh, as I said, than is necessary. So I'll, I'll uh, happily put a button uh, or a bow on this, uh, if you will. I guess maybe one last question is, what are you playing right now? And if there's a game you could recommend to to anybody listening? Um, Destiny 2 Lightfall. Uh, I mean, not now, but like as we're recording this, like pretty soon after. I can't recommend it to people because that game is, I think, messy to get into still, unfortunately but I think it tells some of the best story in games if you're able to put up with the onboarding, which is a difficult, hard thing to do. The Last of Us Part 1 on PlayStation 5, it's an incredible remake. If, you, if you're watching that HBO show, that is the best version of that game. And then totally different Metroid Prime remastered on Nintendo Switch. Yes. I think Metroid Prime is one of the yes. finest games ever. And it's... it's incredibly interesting version of storytelling too where there's not a lot of traditional quote-unquote narrative and the remaster that just came out on nintendo switch is exquisite it's the best version of that game and just an absolutely absolutely wonderful experience so i I think you can't go wrong um, with those games if you want to have a silly fun time fortnite remains a silly fun time uh, on, uh, on that note on silly fun times, uh, this has been a silly, I don't know if uh, silly is the right word. It's been a fun time. Uh, my friend, Christian Spicer, where can people find you? The best way probably is just for folks to go to my website, christianspicer.com. There's links to things there and stuff like that. I blog occasionally that you can find there. You can also pick up a copy of my graphic novel consequences there. I have some physical editions left that I am selling. I'm super proud of it. So you can check that out there as well. Again, at christianspicer.com. And then uh, listen to DLC, the video game podcast I do with Jeff, you know, or uh, the official The Last of Us podcast. Check that stuff out. And then I write long form newsletter about video games as well that you can subscribe to for free at tinyletter.com slash christianspicer. Usually about... uh, once a month or so. And really the, the website's probably the best place links for everything else there as well. And, uh, I think, I think that should do it. Uh, thank you for doing this. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for becoming my friend. And, uh, I look forward to our uh, puppy play dates, uh, very, very soon. And we will continue to dress alike every time we see each other. Every single time. <laughs> Glad you got the memo. All right, dude. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Well, there you have it. As I mentioned at the top, you can hear more from Christian on the wonderful DLC podcast with his co-host, Jeff Kanata. Nothing but good vibes on that show. They discuss things like VR and board games as well, if you're interested in more than just video games. Uh, they always have a great third guest with them, and they do a lot of bonus content around the show too. It's, it's really a great time. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. If you want to get in touch, feel free to reach out to whybuttonpodcast at gmail.com or on Mastodon at whybutton at mastodon.social. 
You can also find me on Mastodon at Kyle Starr with two R's at mastodon.social. This episode was produced by the wonderful AJ Filari. Our theme song was written by Child Star, who is me, and Scott Wilkie. You can find it on all streaming platforms. Thanks again for listening to Y Button, and remember, when you press Y, ask why. Why?